0: Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Again, uh, if you're listening on the internet, we don't have a whole lot of people here because we had a big snowstorm. What did we get? 13 inches last night. 13 inches of snow. So we're having the fellowship of everybody that owns a four-wheel drive here. That's that's what we're doing today. But let's begin by uh, prayer, as we this is our custom, and. Remember to pray for the, the saints that are around the world that are either persecuted, lacking fellowship, and suffering in certain ways. Yeah, we want to pray for them as well. Heavenly Father, thank You that we can gather here in Your name. Pray for those that are on their way, that they'd have safety as they're traveling and with all the snow that's out there. We do also, again, pray for our dear brothers and sisters around the world that are listening, and some of whom do not know where to find Christian fellowship. We pray that they'd feel a part of our fellowship, know that they're loved and prayed for. And Lord, we ask You to open our hearts to Your Word, that we might learn, that we might grow, that we might be transformed by You as You are working graciously through Your means. The Word of God, fellowship, prayer, and communion. And we thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Communion Sunday, so be thinking about what the Lord's done for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we shared a clip, a section out of a MacArthur uh, sermon on restoring the disheartened pastor's joy. And he did a very... Um, thorough exposition of 2 Corinthians 2.14. He gave the background about all the stuff that Paul went through. And he described what one of these process- processions looked like in the ancient world. But um, as, as I've done some more study and reading the scholars, not everybody agrees with his interpretation. Uh, you don't end up with a different doctrine either way. MacArthur took it as... Jesus being the conquering general and us being sort of soldiers under, in his army. But a lot of the commentators take it, uh, in a different way and consider that we're the conquered ones. That we've been conquered through the cross and we're bond servants of Christ. Because the conquered ones, the slaves were also in the triumphal procession. Now, either way, I, um, we're not changing you know, the, the meaning of the fact that we are led in a triumphal procession in Christ. But, but MacArthur preached it so well, I think I like that, that version <laughs> of it. So he really did preach it nicely. Uh, I was going to quote somebody else that uh, gives the slave view right here. A guy by the name of Garland. And he says this, Paul's joyous thanks to God derives from his understanding of the paradox of victory in Christ. The image of the conquered slave exhibited as a showpiece of God's triumph matches the assertion in 12.10, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulty, for when, for when I am weak, then I am strong. His conquest by God actually allows him to take part in God's triumphant march as one now reconciled to God. Uh, Paul's theology is remarkable for a sense of paradox. He suffers with Christ in order to be glorified with Him. Romans eight seventeen and thirty seven. Victory comes in defeat. Glory in humiliation. Joy in suffering. Colossians one twenty four. The wise must become fools to become truly wise. One Corinthians three eighteen. The rich one becomes poor so that the poor might be rich. Two Corinthians eight nine. Now so so even though he takes it as a slave metaphor he's still looking at it as a victorious uh thing and all in kind of in a paradoxical sense but either way we 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 come to the same conclusion that being a part of this triumphal procession with our lord jesus christ is a great benefit and whatever hardships whatever sorrows whatever suffering rejection humiliation that we go through is nothing compared to the glorious privilege of participating in the triumphal procession. And that was MacArthur's point in that sermon, and is one that has permanently changed my life because of the power of the Word of God. Now it says here, and, then, and it continues on with a metaphor of aroma, um, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. And then verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, there's two different Greek words used here. The first one that's translated aroma by the New American Standard Bible in verse 14 is a word that means a smell of any kind, anything that would give off an odor, but not necessarily in a negative sense. It could be positive or negative. The second word, is a word for sweet savor or an aromatic smell, something that was pleasurable, okay? Something that would be a delightful smell. So that, so the New American Standard gives aroma for the more general term and fragrance for the positive one in the second verse. But what we want to do is make you aware that there is a change, uh, in, from the first mention in verse 14 to the second in verse 15. Now, the idea here is that the proclamation of the Gospel itself gives uh, a fragrance that would go out to everyone. Now, as you go on, notice in verse 15, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, verse 16 for the for to the one an aroma from death to death and the other aroma from life to life and who's adequate for these things so the the key point here and this is so very very important is that the gospel is um, has its intended effect whenever it's proclaimed according to the terms that God has revealed okay the gospel is never without its effect. And though its effect might be salvation in some cases, those who are being saved, or increased guilt for those who reject it among those who are perishing, it still has its effect.
1: It's like the concept of, of when Christ comes, it's only good for some. When Christ comes and you're not reconciled with Christ, it's damnation. When Christ comes and you have been reconciled with God, it's a blessing. But the same event ends up having two different effects depending on whether the people have accepted his rule ahead of time or not.
0: That's absolutely true. Somebody had uh, emailed me a question about that. Uh, There's a passage in John where Jesus said, Had I not come, you would not have guilt. But but, because I have come, your guilt remains. So someone uh, emailed me a very good question and said, but everybody has guilt, no matter what, right? So, how they're guilt-free uh, before Christ came? So my answer was that in the context, he's probably talking to the his uh, the Jewish leadership in the, in the his own people. And so the way I would interpret that is Jesus is saying before had he not come, they could have by faith continued on with their sacrificial system. They looked forward to Christ. They could have continued to have their Day of Atonement and had faith in God, according to the terms of the Old Covenant, all right, and have a means of removal of guilt that was already provided, because they had that means, as long as they did so in faith. But now that Jesus came, and they said, No, thank you. We don't want you. We're going to keep our sacrificial system as said. Now there's guilt. You can't get rid of your guilt anymore by the old covenant system. Does that make sense?
1: Well, because if they rejected the one that the covenant system looked forward to, the covenant system itself then is no longer valid because it can't have true faith in a bad object.
0: Right, absolutely. I totally agree with that. You can't have true faith in a bad object of faith. So the object of faith is always to be Christ. Even under the Old Covenant, Christ was still the object of faith, but only in a typological way as they look forward to the one who would come, the suffering Messiah. Um, God's victory procession. See, I had a citation here I wanted to do. Barnett says this, said against the What am I I looking for? Excuse me here. I'm a little confused. I must have wrote down the wrong note. Here it is. All right, here it is. Sorry about that. Uh, On verse 15, he says this. This guy named Barnett. One aspect of the metaphor of verse 15 is that the suffering apostle, like the Christ he preaches, is analogous to the aroma of the sacrificial victim that, as in the Levitical picture, ascends to the nostrils of God. Strikingly, Paul asserts that we are the aroma of Christ to God. The suffering arises because the world to which Christ came and in which the apostle preaches Christ is hostile to God. Paul implies that his sacrifice, like that of Christ himself, is one with which God is well pleased, as with those sacrifices acceptable to God under the Old Covenant. In the previous verse, the fragrance of Christ was the knowledge of him conveyed by apostles' preaching. But in this verse, the aroma of Christ, insofar as it impinges on God, is the apostles' sacrificial sufferings which arise odor-like to God. That was his comment, kind of spanning these two verses. So the um, sweet aroma of the knowledge of him would be the proclamation of the gospel that was going out from the lips of the apostle. And the sufferings that attended that proclamation were uh, something that God found as a sweet savor, which is a phrase That we'll look at in Leviticus that was used of the sacrifices that God was pleased with. The idea of the sweet savor of the sacrifice was that it was offered in faith, and God accepted it, and it was pleasing to him. So it pleased God that Paul suffered as he did for the sake of the gospel, because these sufferings are redemptive in the sense that they are bringing the gospel to people. Not that Paul's suffering paid for somebody else's sins. Only the blood of Christ pays for somebody else 's sins, but his sufferings had to do with bringing the message of christ 's atoning work to people that would not otherwise have it and almost everywhere that Paul went, if you read in the book of Acts, when he went to a new place with the gospel, always it created a division i mean a very, very striking division, and you can uh, the Thessalonian situation is probably uh, as extreme as you're going to see. But they, Paul went into Thessalonica and preached the gospel, and some people believed, and there was violent, violent opposition. And there was even a Greek uh, who had believed, and they brought him out, and they were accusing him because he had believed Paul. Yes,
1: It just gets back to what you are talking about before. When Paul brought the gospel, he brought it to the synagogues first. And in saying that, all the Jews either had to believe in the One that their system was looking forward to, or reject him. So, by very nature of preaching in the synagogue, Christ he brought division because it it brought a lamp, on the people who had faith or didn't have faith.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was only way. There was no neutrality. There's there's no. In fact, there never is for anybody. I mean, we might think that there is, but there's no such thing as being neutral toward the gospel. Because to be neutral is to be an enemy of God and to be hostile. Even if you're nice about it. Okay? Because that's just the nature of things. Now I have some passages. Okay, Michelle, if you could look up Psalm one oh six forty seven and Dale, Romans eight thirty seven and uh, Angela, one Thessalonians three nine, Robert, Revelation seven twelve. Okay, so when you get it, um, go ahead and read Psalm 106, 47.
2: Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise.
0: Okay, save us, O Lord God, and gather us from the nations so that we might give thanks to thy holy name. Saved people are people of praise. Romans 8, 37. But in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. That's interesting. All these things, and, and Paul has a litany of all the things that could conceivably be thought about that might separate us from the love of God. Remember that uh, beautiful section where he says, "Neither height nor depth, or principalities or powers, or things present or things to come, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God." And all these things, in other words, anything that has to do with the created order is something, nothing can possibly separate us from the love of God, therefore we overwhelmingly conquer, meaning that the gospel triumph. The worst thing they can do is kill us, but death is one of the things that can't separate us from the love of God. (laughs) So, that means nothing else can either. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 9.
1: How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you?
0: That's an interesting, that was in Thessalonians. Uh, Paul's joy in the church at Thessalonica, and i finished preaching through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, so we discussed this. Paul just was overwhelmed with joy about the Thessalonians. Now, on the other hand, he was overwhelmed with anguish about the Corinthians. (laughs) There was an entirely different situation in corinth than than in Thessalonica. They're both part of the what we now call Greece, but in Thessalonica, they came under horrible persecution and hatred and opposition, the believers there, and it purified their faith. And they were loyal to Paul, and they didn't question his preaching in in the in his gospel. So Paul was so thankful for that and overjoyed. And the the Corinthian situation was somewhat different because the church there, rather than being in this hostile relationship with the world, were tempted to uh, compromise with the pagans and to continue the pagan practices and thereby avoid persecution. And that was causing a lot of problems. There were moral failures that had to be corrected. There were serious errors. And then on top of that, they had this hyper spirituality. It's a strange mixture of hyper spirituality in Corinth mixed with immorality. But it's a mixture that's not unknown in our day. Uh, I've certainly seen it happen, uh, where there are hyper pious people that are falling into serious moral error. But in, in Corinth, they both things coexisted. So boy, did he have his hands full with this church. <laughs> there was a battle. Uh, Revelation seven and verse twelve. Revelation seven eleven
1: and twelve. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, "Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God, forever and ever." Amen. Wow. Uh-huh.
0: I love the worship. That, that would a great way to study what worship is supposed to be. Is just study the worship in the book of Revelation. And uh, it shows you what sort of things should be in our songs. I actually, I think there's very few of those that we don't actually sing. Is that right, Carla? Don't we sing? What was that? Read that one again. Last verse. Amen.
1: Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might
0: be to our God forever and ever. Yeah, Amen. yeah we've seen that in the past. <laughs> I don't know if we still do. But that's what worship is all about, and you can see you can see it in the Book of Revelation. Yesterday, somebody was sorting through a whole bunch of old. Was that was you, Diane? She was sorting through old overheads. Was it or just music copies, copies of what used to be overheads? They're all 30 years worth of music or whatever that we've sung. And she she had a pile. They all started with the like the first word. Was that what? I. And the biggest pile was I. Okay. I mean, if you just look at songs that that often get sung and what it starts with, the number one is I. Now, it isn't always bad, as I say, because we could say, I am so thankful that God saved a wretch like me or something like that. I mean, it starts with I, but it has a good idea to it. But some of them really aren't that great because um, there's a genre of... Of Christian praise music that I, that I call brag songs, or maybe Jim came up with that idea. Yeah, brag songs. And so then, so then you have this: "I will, I will, I will, I will," and that's the refrain of the of the song. And it sounds pious, but as a matter of fact, it's totally uh, man centered. And, and even if it's a good thing you're saying you're going to do because. You're assuming that you're going to follow through on your pronouncement about all this great and glorious stuff you're going to do. Never deny you. Yeah, yeah, like Peter said, I will never deny you. That's a nice sentiment. But it didn't last even a week. <laughs> and, um, that's like, that I had a radio interview with a guy asked me why I, I thought there was something wrong with Rick Warren's, um, uh, bow that they took at the stadium. Uh, and so well, what's wrong with this I will not be I will, I will always do whatever it takes I will whatever money, whatever effort everything, Lord I give you all I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that and so this guy, radio interviewer said what's well, possible you could be wrong with that I said what do you mean what's wrong with this boasting, how do you know what you're going to do one of them is I will never be frustrated by problems okay <laughs> what do you think you are yeah, yeah. That's, I said it when I wrote about that. I said, if I made that bow, I'd be a covenant breaker probably within a week. Anybody get frustrated this morning try to get out of their driveway? Get four-wheel drive. Well, you had four-wheel drive. No problem there. See, that's why you bought this, just so you'd be more a better Christian when you get mad, right? <laughs> okay, Carla. Uh,
2: with some, with some of the songs that we sing when we sing, like "I'll worship You forever and ever," or, or some," or "I'll you know praise You," "I'll thank You forever and ever." What I construe in my mind to be able to say it rightly before God sometimes is just that by the grace of God, because of what He'll do, yeah. and because His keeping power, He'll. He'll make it possible for me to do this, so mm-hmm. it, I mean you can
0: yeah, you, could almost, you, you can, can see that.:
2: some of those songs just thinking of it in that light.
0: But, looking at it from the, from the faithfulness of God rather than our own ability. and if we're saying we're going to praise God for ever and ever, we're, we could be saying, "I believe in the resurrection," and that once we're perfected and resurrected, we certainly will praise Him forever and ever. But, yeah, you would want to look at it as because of the promise of God, not because I made this vow. And so I think that that's a genre of music that we could do without what the, the brag songs, you know, how great we are rather than how great he is. Okay, let's go to verse 15. For we are a fragrance. As I said, that, that word there means a sweet aroma. And, uh, Carla, maybe you could look these up. They're all in the same chapter, all right? Leviticus 1, and the verses we're looking for, well, I'll have you read them one at a time, then I'll tell you the next one to make it easier for you. (laughs) Are you the mic holder, Keith? Okay, the first one is Leviticus 1 and verse 9.
2: Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke, all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord.
0: No, so the phrase we're looking for is a sweet aroma to the Lord. That's the same idea that we have here. Um, and that, so that's probably what Paul's alluding to. Now the next verse is verse 13 verse 13.
2: The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. A soothing
0: aroma to the Lord. And in verse 17.
2: Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord.
0: (laughs) Okay, so that phrase, sweet aroma to the Lord, is what we read here in 2 Corinthians 15. And so we have a clear uh, allusion to Leviticus chapter 1 and these passages that talks about that same thing. So we, but here it's interesting, it says, we, okay, we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Literally, if you just follow the Greek, literally it says, because of Christ and Aroma, we are to God. So because of Christ. So because Christ offered His sacrifice once for all, remember that little phrase, once for all? You find it in Hebrews several times, once for all. And you find it in Peter, where it says, uh, "Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, no, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. So the once for all sacrifice of Christ is the only truly sufficient and acceptable sacrifice that 's the only one that God accepts is the sacrifice that Christ made now derivatively, all the ones that were accepted under the Old Covenant were acceptable because they looked forward to Christ in faith and they were the way God ordained it. So Christ dying once for all, you know, in retrospect, made all of those sacrifices acceptable to God under the Old Covenant. And so the Bible talks about that. Um, Jesus even said that, didn't he say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day? Right, and so then also derivatively, everything that's acceptable to God in our life, as as is here, our, whether it's our sufferings or the preaching of the gospel, Paul's sufferings he's talking about, are fragrance to Christ derivatively because of that once for all sacrifice that he did, not because there's something inherent in us that's perfect enough to be acceptable to God. Yeah,
1: so. Our, the gospel having its work in our lives and our preaching of the gospel as evidence of that is evidence or gives glory to God as proof that the Christ's sacrifice was actually efficacious?
0: Yes. It, it's, it's, well, there's this idea of an acceptable sacrifice. So, uh, Romans 12, I don't, I think Ryan, if Ryan doesn't get here, I'm going to preach on Romans 12. If he does, then we're in Ephesians. So, so, we got two sermons ready, two PowerPoints ready. So, I know, I'll just preach after he's done, we'll stay here till one. Yeah. Well, n- <laughs> ah, Ryan! Ah. So, I, I I guess I just seen we had two sermons ready. It might be Ephesians, it might be Romans. Okay, so it's Ephesians, so I can tell you about Romans now without ruining my sermon. Let's in fact. Let's turn to it. I'm going to grab my little Bible here. Turn to Romans twelve one. Ryan, we were just talking about uh, in Second Corinthians um, two fifteen it says we are a fragrance of Christ to God. And I was pointing out that the the phrase fragrance there is an allusion to Leviticus one where it's, where there was a sweet savor of a sacrifice. That, and so the, it's the idea of an acceptable sacrifice. And then we were discussing the fact that the really only truly acceptable sacrifice is Christ, and that the ones in the Old Testament were, sac- were acceptable because they pointed forward to Christ. And anything that's acceptable after that, like here is us suffering for the sake of the gospel, or Paul suffering for the sake of the gospel, is only acceptable because of what Christ did. Right. So that's let's look in that light. Let's look at the Romans, excuse me, Romans 12 and verse one. It says here, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, the word spiritual in the Greek is logikos, uh, and, it, and it can also be translated reasonable, as the King James does. and I think that that's, in my opinion, the preferable sack um, uh, uh, translation. It's only used twice in the New Testament and the other time in Peter where the context would indicate spiritual. I did, I went through my logo software and looked up all the references and how it's used and it has a range of meaning. But I would say here, a lot, because in Romans 12, the mind becomes the issue where it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 12, and verse Three, don't think more highly of yourself. Again, it's your thinking. And so I would translate that reasonable in verse 1 just because of the context. Okay? So, um, what it's saying then is that because of, therefore... Now, Romans 12 starts out with the therefore. The therefore refers all the way back to everything, arguments in Romans 1 through 11. Not just chapter 11, but all of the arguments... Basically, basically, about justification by faith. So, because we're justified by faith, therefore, as a consequence of the fact that God accepted Jesus Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, and that his blood washed away our sins, and that we were reconciled to God when we were previously enemies, Romans chapter 5, therefore, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. Acceptable to God. So we can live in a sense of offering up our whole life to God, and it's acceptable to Him, only because of justification by faith. All right, So that's what makes the offering acceptable, is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So that's the, one of the important consequences of the gospel. (laughs) And by the way, this is very important Reformation doctrine we're talking about. That's one of the things, reasons for the Reformation, because we, we uh, believe that the, this continually re-sacrificing, re-sacrificing, re-sacrificing is wrong. That justification isn't by some liturgical deed, done by a new priesthood that's that's an illegitimate priesthood because the only priesthood in the new covenant is the priesthood of every believer. So you create another sacrificial system with a new priesthood and say that you have to do it this way to be acceptable, and we say, no, we're protesting. That's false doctrine. Our sacrifices are acceptable because Christ was, not because of some new priesthood or some new sacrifice. Okay.
1: If our hearts aren't right, if, if we haven't got that, that thing for God. In Isaiah, he says, um, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove evil from your deeds before my eyes.
0: So there, that they was They some... have
1: gotten away from what we read from Leviticus, yeah. they were no longer doing that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Malachi has some of the same sentiments. And um, Jeremiah as well. It says, well, you say the temple, the temple. Well, it's not enough. It's not enough to go through the external functions uh, if you don't come in faith with a contrite heart knowing that you need the Lord. So, the, the issues are very similar under, under the Old and New Covenant. But... And we can see the continuity there because they all look forward to the sacrifice. We look back to it. But it's still one sacrifice.
1: When I was talking with someone this week uh, in struggling with sins, I said, well, what are the means of grace? So the means of grace, we believe our fellowship around the apostles' teaching, prayer, and communion. But again, they're not any more magical than the liturgical system of the of the Jews. If We don't appropriate the means of grace now by faith, they have no more effect than yes. the sacrifices of the Old Testament did the people that didn't have faith then. Their right. only effective is we believe in and appropriate the grace that God's <coughs> given us. Then, in practicing the means of grace, we do grow.
0: Yes, and there's, that's a very good, Keith. I totally agree. And Luther emphasized that too. You know, he believed in means of grace, but any whatsoever not of faith is sin. Okay, so whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or even the word itself, without faith, Paul talks about that. It, it, it talks about um, they had the word. No, it's in Hebrews. They had the word preach as we do. Ah, I got to find that. <laughs> where is that? Hebrews four? Where is it? Where it says they had the word preach unto them as we do, but it was not mixed with faith in Hebrews. Yeah, oh, yeah. Here, Ryan's going to find it. He loves Hebrews. So we'll let him do that. <laughs> I think it's about 4, verse 2.
3: For indeed we have had the good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by
0: faith in those who heard. Right. So it's interesting that the author of Hebrews, in a sense, said they heard the gospel in the Old Testament. Right? Right? Exactly. Yep. And it was there in Moses, but they didn't believe. What was the reference? Hebrews 4. Thought so. So, um, it's possible. It's possible to go to a good, yeah, any church, our church, anybody's church, and have the true word preached clearly, right from the Bible, and the Lord's Supper uh, practiced according to the Lord's institution. I'm thinking of the Reformed uh, and Lutheran definition of what a valid church was. It says wherever the word is preached in purity and the sacraments, as they called them, we don't use that term, are, are, are uh, practiced according to the Lord's institution, then it shall not be doubted that there a true church exists. That's the, that's the definition. Now, so let's say we're in one of those true churches, and the word is preached from the pulpit Sunday, accurately, forthrightly, and without compromise and the Lord's Supper is practiced according to the Lord's institution, and there are people there that do know the Lord and you have the true gospel, you can sit there and be lost. if Because the word doesn't profit until it's united with faith. You can participate, you can participate but it's faith in the truth of, of the gospel that's actually what is the difference between just being a, a dead here and an alive practicer. Yes.
1: I would say when we talk about dead churches coming from a charismatic background, what we equated dead and alive was whether people were enthusiastic or not. <laughs> and, really, and really what the issue is, you can have a dead enthusiastic church because they're not united by faith, or you can have a dead church that has all the right doctrine, And they participate in the means of grace as are dictated, except they don't. They lack faith, and it doesn't have the. the, You look at their life, and their lives don't have the fruit of what that faith and grace would be be happening.
0: As a matter of fact, I remember having that discussion with a charismatic pastor in the late '80s. Um, Before I started writing CIC in '92, I organized a pastors' meeting because I just I kind of wanted to write. I had this writing urge. And so, looking for an audience, I organized a pastors' meeting. I'd write position papers and give it to the pastors, and then let them, you know, chew on it, shoot holes in it, whatever they wanted to do. Um, And so, in that process, most of the people I knew then were charismatic pastors. So that's who we started the process with. And somebody was uh, saying that doctrine is dead. Doctrine is dead. And if you want life, you got to get rid of doctrine and have an alive church. And I said, now, why do you say that? And he said, well, because I used to be a Lutheran. And we had the Apostles' Creed, that's all good doctrine. We had the Nicene Creed, that's all good doctrine. We had all kinds of doctrine in our hymnal and our hymns, and, and we were dead. I said, okay, when you were Lutheran, did you believe... Literally, in the bodily resurrection from Christ, were you fully committed to those things and do you believe that the gospel is absolutely true? Oh no, I wasn't even saved. I said, so what killed you wasn't the doctrine, it was your unbelief. But see, what happened was when, when some people were in a liturgical church that had the nice doctrines all laid out, but maybe just more tradition than genuine faith, and then they... Let's say they go down to Jesus People Church back in the '70s. That's where a lot of these guys actually got saved, and they meet the Lord because they hear the true gospel. Then they they think the Nicene Creed killed me. Okay, the the, the, the doctrines killed me. Now this is excitement. This is life. And then and then it kind of was to it's, it's start. Actually, wasn't too bad a doctrine there. And then as it goes on, trying to find more enthusiasm. Find, trying to find more life. Pretty soon we had stuff that had nothing to do with the gospel at all. And, and, it, and it degenerated to the point where people were quacking like ducks and barking like dogs. And they thought they had life in that. All right, I, Literally, the pastor's meeting, there was a guy that came in that had been to Toronto. And he came into our pastor's meeting. And he was telling about it. And he said, yeah, you should have seen it. We were just standing in the line to go to lunch. And all of a sudden, some guy right in front of him, he gets down on his knees. Bark, 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 bark. And, and the pastor interpreted that as the Holy Spirit working. <laughs> and, and we were all sitting there, oh, uh, what? Okay, now, the point is, believing the truth of the Bible, doctrine simply means teaching, believing the true gospel will never kill you. You can't die spiritually by believing the truth. You can't die spiritually by believing in the resurrection of Christ and the blood atonement and the doctrines of, of Christianity. And you can't, can, how, how can I say this? Luther and Calvin fought the enthusiasts. They thought, they, they thought the enthusiasts were as big an enemy to the gospel as the Roman Catholic Church were. Go ahead, See, you, you know about that because no, you I say would just Luther. Think that
1: just listening to the truth will not save you. Believing the truth will save you, but believing error will kill you every time. (laughs) There's nothing redeeming about error, and it'd be better to go to a a church where truth is preached, and the small chance maybe you'll believe some of it, than go to error, because that's easy to embrace, and it's it's overwhelming. So the concept that we're going to not teach truth because sometimes people don't believe it and it doesn't have its effect is a really silly concept.
0: Yeah, and, and you know what's worse? You know what the absolute worst thing is? Error that's confirmed by signs and wonders.
1: Does mean my, my family is involved right now, very deeply involved in what's considered a revival at a church here in town. And truth is perceived as experience. And because there's miracles, and to the extent that there's miracles and I preach error, I'm tempted to believe that error is true. It's God's grace that he doesn't allow miracles by and large. When there is air. When there is air.
0: He does. Though, when he at, does do look that, look at Antichrist, like, will have lying signs and wonders. It's a much more deceptive
1: wonders. thing because people yeah. believe in miracles and they'll accept the error of will the sinker. It's very, very tragic.
0: Absolutely. And that is exactly what Thessalonians says is going to happen in the tribulation. That Antichrist will deceive the entire world with lying signs and wonders. Now, a lying sign and wonder isn't a sign and wonder that doesn't really happen. It's a real sign and wonder That endorses a lying teaching. Alright? So, the truth, I'm telling, let's summarize it, and Ryan has something to say. Let's summarize, I would summarize this way. You're better off sitting in a church that has liturgy and a responsive reading and doctrines in the back of the hymnal and the truth spoken from however dry, toasty, dry way. From the pulpit, but it's still the truth. <laughs> you know, how, now, yeah, just like me, alright. Don't say amen to that. But, uh, I mean, uh, we, we would be saying that the truth is, the power is in the gospel, not in the, the PA system. <laughs> With the true gospel. You could believe it and be saved. So, cause the power is in the gospel itself. Now, there are many liturgical churches that do not believe the gospel and they hide it because they don't want to preach it from the pulpit because they don't believe it but they may still have it in their, in their hymnal you couldn't get saved by reading the hymnal do you believe that? You could be sitting there in your desperation, I'm, I'm wicked, I'm, my life is going to hell and I know it and I don't know where to turn, and sit in a dead dry church, open up the hymnal and it says here, Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God, and realize that that's true. And realize that that's your only hope. And that God can graciously save you. Because it's there. Now you may never find fellowship. You may end up having to go somewhere else to find fellowship if nobody else in that church believes that, but you can be saved by the truth. So that's why we got to keep the truth in the church. Yes.
3: I think a good question we always need to ask is biblically what is truly spiritual, meaning of the spirit. Good point. And you know, you look at what you were talking about, Bob, with the, the, the barking dog thing and someone thinks that's of the spirit. Well, Jesus said very clearly, the spirit of truth is going to come and he will glorify me. So when we ask what is spiritual, is this teaching, is this action pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Is this glorifying the person and work of Jesus Christ? When we see that, when we see the gospel priest, when we see the person and work of Jesus Christ being exalted, those things we can confidently say are of the Spirit. That's why even Paul, when someone was preaching the gospel out of even bad intentions, he says, I rejoice because I know the Spirit of God can work through that because Amen. the true gospel's there. So we can look at someone barking uh, on their four, you know, on all fours and say, is that bringing glory to Jesus Christ? No, it's not. It's something totally else. So it, I, I think it's, 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 it's somewhat simplistic, but it's, it's foundational. And that's what we look at even in the means of grace. In the means of grace, when we go into the scriptures, what we are doing is it, the scriptures are a means of going to Christ. Because from the the uh, book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, it's all about Messianic salvation. It's all Amen. about Jesus. Amen. Prayer is all about going to God with Jesus as our forerunner. And fellowship, we, we, you have no Christian fellowship unless it's around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So all of that is what truly is spiritual.
0: Uh, thank you, Ryan. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, You know, uh, studying Corinthians helped me a lot... Uh, when I was trying to sort this stuff out back in the 80s, one of the things I did that helped me so much was I read Gordon Fee's commentary on 1 Corinthians. That was a, one of the life-changing experiences also in, throughout my ministry was reading Fee's commentary. And, wh- and when I realized that the problem in Corinth was that these people had mixed error, immorality, and hyper-spirituality. They were they were they thought Paul was not spiritual enough for them. Well, they have a false definition of what spiritual means. Okay, so spiritual isn't the synonym of emotional, and spiritual isn't a synonym of miraculous wonders. It's 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 a description of what messianic salvation is about. Yes, that
1: passage I think Ryan was referring to is out of John chapter fifteen verse twenty six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth,
0: who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. Right. That is how you discern spirits. The way you know whether a spirit, the, the Spirit is from God or not is that the Spirit from God confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And so, you hear all the talk about the Holy Spirit and, a, and revival... All of these terms that we equate, we have a the Pietism is like got a stranglehold on evangelical Christianity, and because of this, and it goes back all the way to the time of Jacob Boehme. Uh, yeah, it's just wicked. Stra- pietism is wicked, in my opinion. My, in fact, remind me, Keith. After the article about these false about Blackaby experiencing God, I want to write an article about Pietism. And trace its roots back to Bome. But anyhow, it, it, what it does is it, it, it redefines what a revival is. It re, redefines what, what it really means, what piety is all about. What is it, what is piety if we just think of it? Isn't it living a life that's pleasing to God? Okay. So what exactly is pleasing to God? Is it that, uh, I mean, pietism takes all different kinds of, uh, uh forms it could be joining some sequestered group in, in the desert and praying 24 hours a day. Uh, it, it could be uh, a severe treatment of the body. It could be some sort of hyper-spirituality. And and I'm a better Christian than everybody else because I do this and I do this and I do this or I had this experience. Pietism basically is looking somewhere besides means of grace to become grow in the grace and knowledge of God. And it is uh, it redefines spirituality. So, because of the influence of pietism on American evangelicalism, we have, across our nation, revivals going on with no gospel at all absolutely no gospel. Nothing about Jesus, nothing about the blood atonement, nothing about repentance, but they call it revival. And people are going there and they're falling on the floor. Or they're, They'll go, one revival we know about, they're going every night for like six months or three months or whatever, night after night after night after night after night after night. went to a revival meeting and no gospel, no gospel, no gospel. There's one revivalist in town claimed that he'd get a vision of a new altar coming down out of heaven. Well, that's a blasphemous heresy. It's, there's a doctrine of demons. There's only one altar that's ever acceptable. It's the one w- that Jesus poured his blood out
1: on. Okay, yes. I'm glad that you mentioned it about spirituality because on my
0: job, a lot of people use that word that word spirituality and throw it around as if they're kind of avoiding saying being, you know, instead of, I'm a spiritual person. Why don't you try righteousness? Or a uh, righteous person. Yeah, you know, you know what? You know where that comes from? Oprah Winfrey. Oprah <laughs> Anity. <laughs> Oprah <Anity. laughs> Uh who was—I uh, uh, think I saw this on the internet. There was some sort of some new DVD out called *The Secret*. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now I don't know. Somebody told me this story, so not firsthand. So if I get it wrong, uh, be uh, kind. Um, but I heard that Oprah had that on. They were talking about it, right? About this thing. It's promoting, it's promoting it. And did I hear right that there was some true Christian who got up and said, "No, I don't think this is right"? Okay, here, give them mic to you. Well, who knows? Who knows the story? All right, come on, fess up. Who watches Oprah?
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you,
0: you probably know the story better than me. Tell the story.
2: I kind of read it on the internet, but some lady
3: in the audience had said this is—I'll paraphrase—but she said this doesn't seem right with. Christianity. And then Oprah had said, Oh, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since a child. as a child.
0: And, and she said, This is what I've always believed. Yeah. I've
3: she's, been to this. she's been trying to promote this very kind of thing for 20 years,
0: she said. So, so the New Age is spirituality. It's basically New Age. Um, so that's why, you know, let's go back to why we're discussing this. We only got about two minutes. Here's, here's, here's why it's important. Our topic is, how can we be pleasing to God? Amen. What is it about me? How can I present my body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord? How can I do that? Can I do that by giving my body over to be burned? Can I give, do that by uh, depriving myself of sleep? Can I do that by taking a, uh, go into the solitude that 's what i 've uh, been seeing go into the solitude and sit in solitude? Can I do that by twenty four seven prayer? Is that going to make me acceptable to God? The answer to all of those things is no. The only sacrifice ever acceptable to God and ever has been acceptable to God is the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ That's right. and every other sacrifice that was acceptable was so because it looked forward to that in faith or looks back to it in faith, but it can be no other way for something to be a sweet savor that's pleasing to God. And if we stay focused on that, it'll keep us out of a lot of trouble and it might even save you a lot of money. Huh? Anybody here ever lost money to bad religious ideas? (laughs) I see those hands. <laughs> okay, um, it's a, a Heresy costs you money. It's very expensive. Okay, uh, thanks for a good discussion. Now, I want to just set the stage. I didn't, we didn't finish this verse 15. Next week, I want to talk about this idea of the diverse re- response to the gospel, of the sweet savor to the being saved. And of the sweet savor, savor to God, but then the perishing. Okay? The aroma to the saved, the aroma to the perishing. And I found a quote from John Calvin's commentary on Second Corinthians that you'll be shocked that he, John Calvin's not a hyper Calvinist at all. Not even close. <laughs> okay? So, um, the point, I'll give you a preview. The point is that God's, uh, he called, the perishing part, God's accidental work, the intentional work is the salvation. The negative side of it, the damnation, was, it was, it was, is not equally ultimate to, to salvation. So we'll talk about that, about equal ultimacy in some of those doctrines next week. So uh, Ryan is going to preach from Ephesians, being how he got out of his driveway <laughs>